Today on The Black Goat, we talk about how we approach peer review, and a letter about the advantages and disadvantages of doing a postdoc. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. I'm here with Samin Vizier and Alexa Tullett, my co-hosts. And Alexa, I have a very important question for you. What's that, Sanjay? Are your, are your legs sore? Because you've been running through Samin's dreams. <laughs> <laughs> my legs are sore, incidentally. <laughs> I did have a dream about Alexa. Well, actually, so it's the dream was, the relevant part of the dream was that I was pregnant with twins and it was too late for me to have an abortion and I was completely <laughs> panicking and I was like what am I gonna do this is like so terrible I don't want two kids and then I was like oh I'll just give them to Alexa <laughs> and I was like completely relieved but the worst part is that actually woke up between part and the second so I was an awake thought not a part of my dream <laughs> <laughs> I was basically like, if that ever happened, I would just give them to Alexa. There's no reason to worry. And that was my like actual self thinking that. That that is a funny phenomenon when you have like a dilemma in a dream, and then yeah. like you're anxious, and then you solve it in your waking life. Like you dream solve it, right? right. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, first, I want to say that I would absolutely take care of your twins and raise them as my own children. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you guys ever? Um, have like a really bad dream about someone and then it like affects your attitude towards them during the day yeah that's definitely happening. I used to think that didn't happen to me and like when people would say that that happened to them I was like what is wrong with you that's so dumb um, but that's happened to me like a few times recently where I just like have this like weird feeling about the person and I'm it's entirely yeah. like from a dream yeah it happens to me quite often I feel like I feel like I usually get over it, but uh, it's been a while since I've had one of those. I don't know. I don't remember my dreams very much anymore. When I was in grad school, I took a dream class, and we had to keep a dream journal. And it really is like, the, you know, there's this very strong phenomenon where if you start recording, like you start writing down your dreams as soon as you wake up, you'll re- you'll just remember them better. Because mm-hmm. um, like, there are a bunch of people who are like, I never remember my dreams. And it's like, well, just, you know, keep a notebook by your bed. And, and as soon as you, you know, wake up halfway in the night, just write something down or whatever. And it totally after you do that, just it only takes a few days. And all of a sudden, like, you'll be remembering multiple dreams a night and whatever. Um, but the dream class was it was it was the best class I took in grad school. It was so much fun. It was taught by Eleanor Rosh, um, who's a super interesting person. She did this like completely foundational work uh, earlier in her career on concepts and categories and and sort of category structure. Um, And, you know, she taught this class. She taught some other ones, but she taught this class and just because it was like out of personal interest. And so the cool thing was we, uh, um, so we would keep, it was very experiential and interactive, right? So we kept a dream journal and every week we'd kind of cover a different theory of dreams. And then we would interpret, like we'd get into little groups and we'd go around and we would interpret our dreams through that week's theory. So it was kind of this cool thing where you could sort of you know, in addition to learning about all these like, you know, Freudian and all these other theories of dreams, it was also just, it was a really interesting exercise in learning how, like, the extent to which like a theory or a mindset can, you know, can 
explain, you know, I had the flexibility and explanations and that kind of thing. So it was like, it was cool on multiple levels, but um, yeah, one of, I remember one of my favorite dream interpretation techniques, and I'm kind of curious, uh, Samin, about your dream in this is like, you, there was one theory that was like, every character in your dream is a part of yourself. Mm -hmm. And so you go through and for each character, you interpret that as part of yourself. So like in, in Samin, in your dream, like, you know, the person receiving the twins is a part of you. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe the twins are part of you. <laughs> I'm giving a part of myself to Alexa. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you're giving yeah. part of yourself to yourself. And so, but, yeah. Yeah. but I was only in the non-dream part. That's true. So I might not you be were a the part solution. of You were the solution. You were the resolution when I woke up in a cold sweat. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is no part of Samin that wants twins. <laughs> I'm I'm sure I must dream about you guys. I just don't remember my dreams because we spend so much quality time together. Uh, <laughs> I had a dream about... So normally my dreams are either like very, very literal portrayals of problems that I'm having in real life or like thinly veiled symbolism like the kind of symbolism that somebody would write in like their fifth grade English class or something <laughs> so like I'm, I'm not sure if I've told you guys this but I had a dream when I was in grad school um about Mickey my advisor um and I was washing the dishes and it was like an overwhelming amount of dishes and then Mickey came in with more dishes <laughs> and I was like Mickey I already have too many dishes to do <laughs> so, that's funny so there's that. But I had a dream about you, Sanjay, that I'm not sure what the symbolism means, so maybe you guys can help me interpret it. Um, but I had been selected to do, like, the decorations for the Olympics. And so I was in, like, this, like, Olympic stadium, and I was, like, with a team of people, and we had to decide about the decorations. But there was also, like, free food at this decoration planning meeting um, that involved oysters. And Sanjay was like... You can't eat the oysters until you plan the decorations. <laughs> <laughs> and he was like, we've gotten in trouble with, about eating the oysters too soon before. We can't do that this time. Uh, what, uh, given your propensity for extremely thinly veiled dreams, like, does, it, does this, am I just like the, am I, am I like the, the rule enforcer in your life like what's that <laughs> i think it, it must be like you um leading sips ec meetings i think and just being okay. like oh we need to like be careful of this we've had this in the past or something like that i don't know right but now but, now you're now you're you're the oyster denier <laughs> you're uh you're yeah that's true people they can't have any oysters mm-hmm. yeah. or maybe that. like we could take a more freudian approach and be like the oysters symbolize something and the Olympics symbolize something. And I, I feel like oysters like immediately lend themselves to like just the worst possible for interpretation. I absolutely it, you know. agree. You guys, the, the podcast is going to get awkward. I think we should <laughs> change subject. Did I have a sex dream about Sanjay? <laughs> no, apparently I'm denying it to you. It's like, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, and it, it that's to mean predicted. It just got awkward. Yeah. <laughs> let's go back to the twins. How is that? No, anyway. Let's um, let's say it was about sips. Yeah. What it, I mean, what do you guys think of like dreams as a? I mean, hardly anybody studies them in psychology anymore, in, in sort of mainstream psychology, right? They used to be 
Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, like Freud, but but you know, they. I mean, a lot of people study sleep, which is a super important topic, of course. But yeah, I don't know. Is that something? Because like one of the theories of dreams is is kind of an anti-theory, right? It's that it's just. Uh, um, I think this was this Francis Crick. There's somebody who's like their theory of dreams is basically they're meaningless. Like that, uh-huh. that's right, the, right. the theory is like this yeah. is just your brain. It's epiphenomenon of something uninteresting and and whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, one really fascinating question I have about dreams is, can you benefit from the experience you have in your dream? Because I feel like I often have dreams where I do something morally bad. And I feel like I remember that feeling of like shame and guilt and like the consequences and all that. And I mm-hmm. think it helps me not do those things in real life. Like I have dreams about cheating on partners, like not that often, but I've had them multiple times in my life. And I feel like it was so vivid that the like emotional experience of what I felt afterwards is like a very strong motivator to me. If I ever even like entertain the idea that I remember what that felt like. And so I wonder if that's true in general. And like in this case, I mean, I always thought I didn't particularly want my own kids and, and like seeing my reaction in the dream was like reassuring Mm -hmm. that it's consistent with what I believe consciously in my non dream, non sleeping life. Yeah. Well, I mean, the I mean, one of the theories, right? One of the the less fun theories, or I mean, less less like imaginative or whatever kinds of theories. Like, there's you know, there's good work I think suggesting that REM sleep is important for memory consolidation and learning, and and but I guess the question is like, are the dreams just sort of like an kind of like an outcropping of what's going on, or would like what you're asking like? is the process of actually actively contemplating this and remembering it yeah. and remembering it. So like, I, I can't imagine how the experiences I remember dreaming about and experiencing my dreams wouldn't help me not necessarily as much as if I'd actually experienced them in waking life, but it feels so similar, especially like when I remember it, I remember it in a very similar way to my memories of lived experiences. So I, it's hard for me to believe that it doesn't have at least some of the same impact as my memories and experiences in my waking life. Do you ever have reactions in your dreams that seem completely unlike you? I can't think of like a specific instance of that, but I wonder, Yeah. do we react to things the same way in our dreams as we do in real life? Yes. Are we still like, do we still have the same personality and desires and everything? Yeah. That would be a really interesting question. I mean, my, of the dreams I remember, yes. I uh-huh. think so. Like, I'm afraid of the same things in my dreams that I'm afraid of in my life. Or Oh, that's interesting. Like, when I was yeah. a kid, I was afraid of uh, burglars and, like, being kidnapped and stuff. And I would sometimes have dreams about that. Yeah, right. Yeah, one of the one of the interesting things I came away from the dream seminar feeling like is, you know, especially this, this process of, like, going through all these different theories. You know, the, the presumption that there is, like, a correct meaning to a given dream and it's your job to... F- figure out that correct meaning. I'm not sure I buy into that. Mm -hmm. But there's kind of an interesting process issue, which is that like, the process of trying to interpret the dreams can be really, certainly interesting and and maybe beneficial because, you know, it's like, on one level, you could think like, you could just take anything and just say like, if if you take a short story, and then like, have someone say like, imagine you're the protagonist in the short story I was gonna and, say, and talk sort of, about it it feels like um interpreting either like horoscopes or like tarot card readings like I think that some people would say that there is value to doing tarot readings because like the process of just like interpreting basically like random yeah. stimuli is 
sort of like interesting and telling in itself. Hmm. Do you think Dreams yeah. is like a step above that or essentially the same thing? Well, I, if you keep so your same personality, they, then it must be. Yeah. I, I mean, I think what, what the Dreams add in part is like the self-relevance both the the Mm -hmm. the content of the dream is is coming from you but then also just this really strong sense of like attachment because it's your subjective experience or not attachment whatever like like connection to it yeah um and i mean i think that the question about like having the same or different personality is interesting because you know we know that personality is flexible and multifaceted and so like asking that question like I, that was why one of my favorite things was taking every character in the dream and and sort of figuring out like yeah. or, what part of yourself is this because uh-huh. you you can do that like you, if you yeah. push yourself you know and I, it's probably one of these things where like if you took a short story and said how am I like you know this the bug in Kafka or whatever you could you could answer that but there's something more compelling when it's come from inside your own head even yeah. and so even if the character doesn't superficially seem like you you can go through that process although i think what your you character your i character and your dream does is really interesting i agree that i think it's also interesting to ask why your brain also produced these other characters but um it's it would be interesting so like nina strominger and other people's work about like what's most central to your identity i wonder if like what's most central to your identity is less likely to vary in dreams so like i've had one or two dreams where i could fly but i've never had a dream where i was a raging extrovert and so I wonder if, like, <laughs> not flying is less central to my identity than being introverted. Yeah, that's, oh, a, that's, that's a really good point. And that's what I was thinking, too, when when you were saying, when you interpreted my question as, like, oh, do, are you just asking, like, do we have the same personality and goals or whatever? Um, I was less, um, I was willing to agree with that. But then it does seem like in dreams sometimes totally absurd things happen that we, like, don't really react to. That I think we would react to if they happened in real life. You know what I mean? Um, So in that way, our reactions in our dreams seem different than our reactions in real life. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, I don't know. Yeah, maybe we would be surprised if we, like, acted in very counter-personality ways in our dreams or something. Yeah, it would be really interesting to study what differences there are, what does vary between your dream self and your... I want to say, I, I'm going to get on Google Scholar after we, we're done. I feel like I might have seen a study about that, but I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Um, mm-hmm. Like someone Whoa, someone doing like so per- personality assessment in dreams or something like that. Um, yeah. Gosh, I... Okay. I, yeah. After we're done, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little Google scholaring because that if someone hasn't done that, like listeners, if you're looking for a dissertation yeah. topic, yeah. <laughs> I feel like maybe someone did that. Um, but it's yeah. Yeah, it's that would be interesting. really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would be fascinating if people's personalities are really consistent, but like their abilities, like flying and other things, are yeah. not like right. That would be really fascinating. Yeah, and the the connection to Nina's work is super interesting, right? Because there is mm-hmm. this like, you know, she does these like thought experiments where she mm-hmm. says like imagine this thing changed about you would you still be you right and uh you know that is kind this of is like, like your imagine- brain doing its own thought experiments out of your control yeah, like, yeah what things like, does it vary and what things does it keep the same what if you could fly would you still be you i think most people would say yeah that's yeah. my intuition right you yeah. know um, i would yeah. love to have a dream where i was a raging extrovert oh that would be so fascinating <laughs> oh i wish i could make huh. that happen Oh, yeah, well, that, that that gets into the whole like lucid dreaming thing, right? Yeah, could, like, take, but take also there's the, this idea, and I don't know if this is true or not, or to what extent it's true that you like can't dream about things that you have no like representation of or something. So maybe like you have a some kind of representation of 
flying or what it's like to fly or something <laughs> from I don't know like TV but or of, but like not of what it feels <laughs> like to be an extrovert I don't know yeah that's funny yeah, maybe the twins were extroverts. That's what you wanted to give them to Alexa. You're like, I don't know how to deal with these people. They talk too much. What am I supposed to do? It's going to be a party all the time in my house. Yeah. Well, should we, speaking of dreams, we've, we've, got a, we've got a letter about somebody's dream. Should we, should we do it? Yeah, let's do it. So, um, yeah, caveat about this letter. We're sort of trying to double dip with this letter potentially because um, it seemed like so the letter is much longer than what we'll read, um, and we thought that this might be something that we could do as a, a full topic later on. Um, so this is a very, very shortened um, version of this person's letter. Uh, so here we go. Dear the Black Goat team, when should you take a postdoc over another option, assuming I want to end up in academia? Um, thank you for your time, an avid Black Goat listener. I think the the letter writer is not even going to recognize. Like, not no, only did we like, cut a bunch of stuff, I think we actually wrote that. We part. just changed, we just wrote a new letter. <laughs> yeah, we basically wrote a new was, letter. We're like, what's whole... one interesting question about postdocs that we can answer in a letter yeah. writing segment? Yeah. So in in the but future, we wouldn't have we thought of postdocs episode. necessarily as a letter on our own. So avid black goat listener deserves credit for that. It's it's like it's like dreams like this. There is some origin to the content within it. Anyway, okay. Um, so when when should you take a postdoc over another option? I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about so so somebody's like assuming I want to end up in academia. So somebody's reaching towards the end of grad school. Like, what are the options? So trying to go directly into the academic job that you want is is one option. Um, doing a postdoc, doing visiting professorships, doing taking a job in academia, but that's not what you want. It could be because of location. Mm-hmm. It could be because of job type. You want to be at an R1, but you take a, a job at a more teaching-focused institution or vice versa. Um, could be going into industry. So there's a lot of different possibilities, right? Um, but yeah, what are the pros and cons, assuming you want to go into... Well, I'm guessing if the person's talking about postdoc as a stepping stone, then they're probably thinking of a research-intensive academia job. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, although not necessarily, but m- But let's assume likely. that. Yeah. Otherwise, it's too hard to answer, I think. So let's assume okay. it for the case right. of someone who wants to d- be in a at least like largely a, or partially research-oriented yeah. academic job. Right. Mm-hmm. Somewhere where they're training PhD students and doing right. a lot of grad grad education and and that sort of thing yeah i think one attitude i've heard more and more over time is that it's good to do a postdoc for its own sake that like even if you could get the kind of job you want straight out of grad school that it's better to do a postdoc or it's better to not try because it's so unlikely you could or that kind of thing Mm -hmm. and I, i feel like people are either like exaggerate that or are overconfident about that like i'm not mm-hmm. sure that's true if unless you want to do a postdoc but like the idea that like a postdoc is a necessary step i think that's true in some subfields of psychology and certainly in other fields um but in social and personality psych i'm not sure that's true yeah i think for many people it helps but i don't think it's absolutely necessary definitely when i was on the job market your advice i mean was not to do that like not to like take a postdoc over a job um which i don't know how much of that is like the uncertainty of whether you'll get a job in the future i mean i think that's like a huge factor um but i feel like your take was sort of um that 
if you if your ultimate goal is to get an academic job then you take one when you can get one I think it depends a lot on like how happy you are with the option you have Mm -hmm. if you have an academic job offer and also how appealing a postdoc sounds to you. Mm -hmm. So I'm talking about like cases where people don't have any particular desire to do a postdoc, but they feel like they ought to without even knowing if they could get like there's a chance they could get the long term job they want Mm -hmm. and they don't even try because they think they have to do a postdoc. I see. Yeah. And that this that question is probably most relevant. or more relevant to some subfields than others because Mm -hmm. you know I I feel like in cognitive neuroscience it's gotten pretty damn hard to get a job without doing a Mm postdoc and and if you're the more you sort of get towards like biological stuff and and if you're in a biology department then I think it's virtually impossible to get a job straight out of grad school these days whereas like in our areas of social and personality it's still kind of some people do some people don't although it's certainly become a lot more common um yeah i you know i mean the there's the 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 career considerations and the other considerations right like postdocs can be very disruptive to you know partners and families potentially Mm -hmm. if if it involves a move if it involves you know or to your social life generally even if it's yeah not your family yeah right you're you're moving to a new place you're changing your relationships if you've got a partner then they have to um either they go with you and they have to deal with uh, the ramifications of that or they don't and you have to deal with being long distance if you've got kids you've got to move them to a new school and you know if you're moving and all, and all the things move them out of their social networks which you know so there's there's all these things and on the other hand if you, if you don't have a lot of these attachments um postdocs like the opportunity to move to a new place for some people might be appealing it might be like oh, I get to, like, if you're high in openness to experience and, and don't, you know, doesn't ha- don't have a lot of these things, it could be like, oh, I can move to this cool place. So um, that can be part of the consideration, I think. But, like, relative to, I mean, let's talk about relative to, like, other interim steps, right? So let's assume that, that for whatever reason, going straight into the job you ultimately want is off the table. So it's like, do you do a postdoc versus do you, what else, like... I mean, I think a common thing is visiting professorships, these like sort of uh, short term contingent teaching gigs. Um, That's a that's a thing. Yeah, I think if you have to move anyway, then a postdoc is probably one of the more appealing options because you often have more time. The only I would ask if the postdoc is funded through a grant that you got yourself or at least you were pretty involved in getting or if it was completely the advisor's money and they they and their it's their project and you're just going to have a role in it after it was already designed and everything in which case i think then a postdoc might be a little bit less appealing because you might have less control over what you study and how you spend your research time and stuff like that but in general i would say if you want a research-oriented academic job, then a postdoc is going to be probably more appealing than a lot of visiting positions because mm-hmm. it'll have more time for research. Right. And yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, the, the postdoc that's on an advisor's grant that they've written, there's so much variability in those. But mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of those work out really well because if your interests align and, you know, one of the things about postdocs that can be useful is that they, they typically 
have a training component, maybe formally or maybe informally. But so if, if you know if you're working on a project and you're learning some new skills that you want to carry forward with you, that can be really cool. Mm-hmm. I think one of the big uh, one of the big differences is not so much like whether it's your funding or not, but sort of you hear kind of quasi horror stories about like somebody shows up to do a postdoc mm-hmm. and they're given a lot of grunt work and, and administrative work. They're basically like turned into a glorified secretary um, yeah. uh, and, and not given a lot of sort of opportunity to contribute intellectually. And so I'd say like contributing intellectually to some, to a project somebody else came up with, but where you're adding to it is like totally fine. But yeah. if, if someone's like, I want you to schedule all my subjects and like, you know, wash my car and like all these other things. And it's, yeah. uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess I just meant if it's completely the advisor's project and money, then look out for that. But yeah, yeah, many, of, many sure. times it's still great. But yeah. I used to say that <clears throat> if I'd had the option of doing a postdoc, knowing that I would ultimately get my job, that I would have preferred to have done a postdoc. Um, and I think my thinking was that <clears throat> it would have been nice to have this like time to, I guess, like devote to research or also just to like learn new things. Um, but lately I have been thinking that I don't agree with that. Um, I guess because I think that you learn a lot as a as an assistant professor also. Um, and you so, get sabbaticals, which right. provide that opportunity. And- yeah, right. And you get to them sooner that way. Um, yeah. So I think some, sometimes some this depend. Oh, god. Oh, I was just gonna say I think sometimes people are torn between, let's say they're like, between yeah maybe like a less than ideal job and then doing a postdoc and getting that experience and then, um, or maybe that's not the right comparison. I don't know. I guess maybe the the more apt comparison is like doing a postdoc. Um, and then getting the job afterwards as opposed to going straight into the job. Um, yeah. But of course, you can't know those things in advance. There's also a there's a practical issue, which is hard to anticipate, which is um, in depending in the job you eventually end up in, you know, it's getting more and more common for departments to care more about whether or not you have funding. And just one of the very practical things is like, if you're going to end up in a department where they're kind of like you can't get a you're you're not going to get tenure unless you've gotten external funding. Then having and, and grant agencies, you know, the, so having a longer track record before you start that job can kind of make it more likely. And I, I think this is a real problem. This is a mm-hmm. real structural problem with how the direction academia is going. It's like where all these forces are moving in the direction of like making people do more postdocs yeah. and. Um, and that's, I think that that's making it harder for women and minorities and people with families because those are, I think, those are more likely to be disruptive to people like that mm-hmm. and, and, and all these other things. So, you know, if I, if I was like, if somebody was like, hey, I have a choice between like a pretty good job now versus a postdoc and they were in an area where it's typically expected that you have to have independent funding to get tenure that would be a thing to consider. I, I hate that that's the case. I know. I, it's I really think people, annoying. I think, I it's think we basically, should be supporting junior faculty more. Yeah, and it's just making people precarious for longer. And like, yeah. I mean, for mm-hmm. me, one of the big reasons I'm pro going straight to a tenure track job, if, if it's a tenure track job, you could imagine being happy in and not wanting to leave, um, 
is good. I really think getting tenure makes a big difference in yeah. many, many aspects of your life financially, your freedom to criticize things and people and like all these other things. And the longer we put push that back, the more we're like a bigger and bigger proportion of our field is going to be in a position where they don't feel free to do those things. They don't have the resources to do those things. Uh-huh. So like, I just want more people to be past the tenure hurdle at any given time point so that we have more people who can, you know, take on service things that somebody has to do, but we don't want to make junior people do or take a chance on something that could be like, you know, set your career back a year or two, like your publication record back for a year or two, but things like that. Like we need people who are able and willing to do those things. And often it's not fair to put that on people pre-tenure. So, but, and also there's fun things about being post-tenure. So like for all those reasons, I, I don't like things that delay people in academic career tracks getting to that point because I think it's an important mm-hmm. point to get to like relatively it's nice to have a life after that and not just a yeah. short part of your career after that I think that that maybe I hadn't been making this um connection explicitly but maybe that's why my attitude towards like the alternative reality um has changed because I'm now I'm like if I had done a postdoc I wouldn't have tenure yet and I like that I have tenure now <laughs> yeah yeah, I think yeah. the really hard thing is, like, what's a job that's good enough, that you're happy enough, that you wouldn't wonder, like, could I have gotten a better job if I had done a postdoc? And it's really hard to know, because even after the interview and everything else, you don't really know, like, would I be happy if I if that was the job I ended up at and I never moved? Like, would I be happy there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so what are, what about some of these other options? So, we, I mean, we talked a little bit about visiting professorships, although some, sometimes, like, I think it's not unusual for people to have a choice of, like, try to move for a postdoc versus stay in the area for something that's, you know, like a, my, my grad program might hire me as an adjunct for a year mm-hmm. or there's another program in the area so I don't have to move. Or sometimes you can stay in grad school another year. Yeah. And then also, like, I mean, industry is really interesting in that I feel like it hasn't actually changed all that much yet, but it might be about to. So, like, we had a we have a search in data science in my department this year, um, And we were, uh, and there's another search in data science and psychology that I think Arizona State is running. And they actually, they were very smart. They explicitly said in their ad that industry experience will be, I can't remember exactly how they phrased it, but something like viewed positively or something like that. And I wish we had said that too, because especially for data science, you know, you can think of all kinds of ways where having someone who's got a PhD, maybe was in academia for part of their post-PhD career or not, but but had some experience in industry would bring both like connections and, and knowledge of that to help grad students, but then also actual knowledge that they obtained from doing applied work. Um, and I, I so I feel like in our search, we, and there were some people in there um, uh, who had industry experience and, and that was like, awesome. Like, you know, and, and I, but I don't know more broadly outside of like a search that's defined as data science where there's such a clear connection if somebody, I, I feel like things are maybe loosening up, but I, I just, people are good. It's going to take more people trying to find out empirically whether this is the case. Like if you've gone and you've worked at, you know, in the tech industry, especially if you're going to go into more data science stuff, or you've worked at an NGO, or you've worked for government, um, you've worked in policy, and then you apply to come, come quote unquote, back into academia, um, 
I, I feel like maybe there are going to be more opportunities for that to be viewed as yes, but right now I'd say that's like a high risk proposition just because nobody's done it. So I wouldn't, if, if your goal is to end up in academia, I wouldn't say do that as your first choice. But I would also say like, if you do that and you're like, I still want to do academia, you shouldn't write yourself out of the picture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if someone like did it knowing that their goal is to end up in academia, if they would be able to like maintain connections with their collaborators and like maybe publish a bit or something like that. Um, I mean, that's a lot to do on top of a full time job. But I wonder if maybe we don't have a model of people choosing to do that instead of a postdoc um, who know what that they want to go back into academia after that. Um, but I agree that I think right now there's a lot of biases against that and it would be a hard battle. I, th- I hope that changes soon. But. Mm-hmm. Well, do we have any, any other comments for the question that our letter writer didn't ask? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we'll save it for the episode. If we do an episode on postdocs, yeah, I, I feel like now we're we're kind of obliged. People are like, "When's yeah, your right. postdoc episode?" Okay, but uh, thank you uh, to avid Black Goat listener for um, writing us a letter that's both got us thinking about doing a postdocs episode, but also in, inspired us to completely rewrite your question into something we <laughs> answer today. Um, and uh, yeah, listeners, if you have an email, a letter that you want us to respond to, or that you want us to pretend to respond to while we answer a different question that we'd rather answer um you can email us letters at the blackgoatpodcast.com we're on twitter twitter.com slash blackgoatpod we're on instagram at blackgoatpod we're on facebook facebook.com slash blackgoatpod Ooh, i just um have you guys heard about this new social media platform wt social no it's this um the the guy that founded wikipedia is trying to start up a new uh um a new social media platform it's called wt social and it's supposed to be like they're not going to sell your data to make money so it's similar to wikipedia they're going to try to make it like donation driven and that kind of thing so i just got an account on it and so i i created a black coat podcast uh uh they're called Subwikis on there so i created a black coat podcast group on wt social so if you're on wt social uh you can follow us there i will post i'm going to start posting episodes on there in case Cool. Like three three people on the entire service. We'll be the most popular podcast on the (laughs) We're getting in early. So anyway, uh, there's that. Um, Website, www.theblackcodepodcast.com. And uh, um, thank you, listeners, for for all your support and feedback and and all of that. Um, So our our main topic today is peer review. And we wanted to, to talk about uh, kind of each of us, how we approach peer review, talk about some important things. I know a lot of our listeners are grad students and early career people who maybe get started out in peer review and want to just learn more about like how that works. But then also, like I always find it interesting, even as, as far along as I am, to hear about how other people approach peer review. Because it's this thing that we, in some ways, like you get feedback on one part of it, right? Like you write your review, you send it in, you typically will see the cover letter and how the editor responded. But and you see other people's peer reviews, but you don't necessarily get feedback into the process parts of it that aren't evident in that final outcome, um, unless you're like talking about it. So I'm kind of curious. Maybe I'll learn a thing or two from you two, um, as well as maybe some of our uh, more distinguished listeners might uh, be interested in what we have to say about it. Um, so uh, I mean, Samin, you do a lot of editing right so you mm-hmm. see a lot of peer reviews as well as you still review stuff yourself like how how is your 
How has your approach to peer review evolved over all that time? I think one big change is that I try not to insist on changes that I think are a matter of taste or subjective preference, which is actually a lot of the, th- the points mm-hmm. I raise. So I, I will still make the points, but I'll try to really bend over backwards to say, like, this is just what I would have done. But like, I don't think that the decision should rest on whether or not the authors choose to do it this way. I just want them to consider it. And maybe I'd be curious to hear if they decide not to do it. Why not? But like, but yeah, I think it's a subjective thing. And I think basically like my attitude has shifted more and more towards our job is just to evaluate. It's a product. It's a, it's a product that the authors believe is a finished publishable product. Mm -hmm. And mainly our job is to evaluate whether it's publishable or not. I mean, I actually think that's the wrong question, but, um, and and so we're not co-authors and mm-hmm. we can we can say if we were co-authors what we might have like suggested and i think that that can be helpful but i think we need to be really really clear when that's not like that doesn't make it doesn't change whether it passes the bar from accept to not or that kind of thing so i try really hard to bracket that off and make it clear these are just now it's some ideas or thoughts i had that the authors might want to consider mm-hmm. that's one big change um and then, I mean, I think this might, I don't know if this has changed, but another really big difference among reviewers is how much they focus on methods and, like, accuracy. Like, is everything correct versus more, like, is it creative enough? Is it novel enough? Is it theoretically grounded enough? Things that are more about, uh, more, I don't know, like, less about correct or incorrect. Uh, I don't know what the right, they're not necessarily subjective, but they have less to do with accuracy and more with other factors um and i'm more and more convinced that those other factors shouldn't be relevant to whether the paper gets published or not it should be more about yeah post-publication like Mm -hmm. evaluations and triage like yeah we should have ways to flag like papers that are strong because they're theoretically strong or papers that are strong because they're creative or whatever but not having those things shouldn't necessarily like if something's accurate and correct and well carried out then i don't I don't like the idea of not publishing it because of those other factors. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably one of the things that's changed the most for me over time, too, is caring less about not just caring less about novelty, but also just caring less whether things are theoretically justified. Like you could ask a question and be like, there's no theory that I know about related to this. I have. (laughs) Yeah. But I think this is an interesting question to ask, and I would be perfectly Mm -hmm. fine with that. Um, And... There is a point where I think that something's like so uninteresting that even if it were accurate, I'd be pretty unenthusiastic. But I think yeah. I have a pretty low bar for that. Yeah. yeah. I've had, uh, yeah, I think the, and this is kind of related to your first point, Samin, about like everything. I'm, I'm more and more, I've become more and more aware as, as I've been a reviewer of like, the ways that comments, both from both sides of it, like the ways that reviewer comments get translated into action via the editor or via people reading it. And so just trying to be explicit with each point I make about what, you know, how is this to be taken? Is this a suggestion? Is this a like, if you don't do this, I'm not going to, I'm going to believe the results less or, you know, whatever, like, and then, yeah, I find this, this issue that you, you guys are raising really complicated because there are a bunch of things about like importance or whatever that I've just, I've come to believe less and less one that importance is important. And two, you know, Samin, you've really, I think 
gotten me thinking about this a lot through conversations we've had in the past about like even if it is a thing that we ought to care about that we're really shitty at judging like <laughs> what's likely to be cited in the future or mm-hmm. taken as important or whatever um and so i you know i i but it but if i'm reviewing most of the journals i'm reviewing for do have that as a criterion you know collabra plus one have this you know a, a different approach but most journals view themselves as like selective on importance and impact and then, yeah, what you're saying, Alexa, another thing, you know, I'm, I've found myself like reviewing papers that are essentially interesting as descriptive papers. Mm-hmm. They're not theory testing, they're, they're exploratory or descriptive or both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I starting to both sort of um, comment on like, not like try not to make them put something that has the like dolled up semblance of theory on top of that, like as if that's what's supposed to make it interesting. Um, And then to actually like sometimes, you know, get it on a little soapbox as a reviewer. And if I'm worried that the editor is not going to appreciate that to explain why I think this is valuable as descriptive work. Um, and, uh, um, and, and, and also like sort of by proxy, like say here, you know, this is valuable as descriptive work. Here's some ideas how the authors could, you know, sort of address that or whatever. Um, because I, I, you know, this is very much the, like the Solomon Ash, Paul Rosin paper Mm -hmm. about how we need to have more descriptive work. I, I feel that is very much the case in the work I end up reviewing in personality and social and, it's we don't have really good models for like how do you evaluate a descriptive paper um and and some people really disparage that and so sometimes there's like a not small dose of advocacy in my reviews which is Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe that's a little bit arrogant (laughs) for me to be doing but well i mean everybody's doing it to some extent so like i don't know if this is still true i've kind of lost touch with a lot of social psych reviews that i'm not the editor on so like (laughs) so like the mainstream social psych but it used to be that you have to have a mechanism which is a really big strike against descriptive research because often like we're not even at the stage yet where we're asking about mechanism Mm -hmm. um and so there's going to be the chances that there's going to be a reviewer who's like you have to go find a mechanism are pretty high so i think saying this is interesting even though we don't know why it's happening just the fact that they've discovered this phenomenon that we think might be happening that's it's fine to leave it for later research to try to figure out why it's happening or that kind of thing i mean what they're doing when they're insisting on mechanism is advocacy too so Mm -hmm. I don't mm-hmm. see any problem with pushing for the the value of not doing more, of saying this is good enough, this is a chunk of con- knowledge or contribution to knowledge that's good enough on its own. Mm-hmm. I will say that that's, I, a, that's a really good point that a lot of a lot of adv- a lot of things only feel like advocacy when they're a minority position. It's not mm-hmm. because they actually are. Or aren't. That's, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. that's a very good point. It's a very general thing yeah, about life, true. but this is yeah. a, this <laughs> is an <laughs> interesting manifestation huh. of it. Yeah. Um, I was going to say, yeah, I do. I said that I um, don't think about the theoretical justification much. There are some exceptions. So if a paper is um, not pre-registered, I think I do consider the theoretical justification more mostly as a sign of like, um, if the theoretical justification feels like very obscure or weak, then I might see that as a red flag that maybe um, they didn't have the hypothesis that they tested from the start. and then also if if people are trying to make a particular theoretical claim, um, but I don't think that their results follow from that claim, then 
um, then I evaluate the fit between like the theoretical claim that they're making or the revision to theory that they're trying to claim and the, their data. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting exercise sometimes to try to figure out what are they trying to do? And, and also because it's on two levels, what do they say they're trying to do? And then what do you think they're actually trying to do? Uh-huh. Cause sometimes you, you do get these papers where you're like, I think what's really going on here is these people want to be doing descriptive research. They just find this interesting, but they feel like they have to have a theory. And so they slapped one onto the introduction. And so I'll sometimes say, like, look, like, this isn't actually all that good of a theory in in terms of what a theory is supposed to do. But Mm -hmm. uh, I think this is super interesting as descriptive work, and I'll sort of say that, right? So I'll sometimes, and hopefully, I could imagine that being incredibly annoying if I guessed wrong. (laughs) You know, I'm like, your theory sucks, but your work is good as descriptive. You're like, I like my theory. but um, I think I've been in that uh, situation almost. Well, as like an editor, I, for for one paper, I basically said, like, I feel like you're reaching really hard to make this, like, one like more surprising claim, but I don't need you to make that claim. You can make like the more subtle or like the more obvious claim. And then they were like, no, I want to make this more surprising claim. <laughs> I'm not just doing this for you. Like I believe. I mean, in a way true. that's good. They're not just trying to get a publication, right? They yeah. actually like care about what they're saying. Yeah, so I know. Nice. I was like, okay, cool. Like, I'm, and then, yeah, and then yeah. they did a pretty good job. And then you're like, but then you did that really poorly. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> I, didn't, I didn't buy it. So yeah. I feel like we've been talking yeah. about like the responsibilities that a reviewer has to not like impose their own uh, standards of like it has to have a mechanism or if I were a co-author I would have done this or whatever I think there are a lot of like would those be I don't know negative responsibilities or something that you ought not to do as a review you ought to remember your place and not act like you're a co-author and not take things that are like just your personal idiosyncratic taste and, and inflict that on everybody but do you think there are positive responsibilities as a reviewer like as a reviewer you really ought to at a minimum you have to check for these specific things so you have to evaluate these aspects of the paper or do you think it could be it can vary a lot between reviewers for like a standard empirical paper. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that maybe to sort of connect this to what we were just saying, there's a distinction between like, what is this paper trying to do? Mm-hmm. And are those good or bad things? A lot of that is taste or is, is preference. But then given what it's trying to do, how well is it doing it is often mm-hmm. where the more like uh, uh, good, bad, evaluative stuff comes down. So like if someone is like, on the one hand, like, should all papers speak to causality? And there's some people in so in experimental social psych who think if it's not about cause and effect, it's not interesting. And I vehemently disagree mm-hmm. with that. Um, but, like, given that a paper is trying to tell a causal story, I think, like, looking really carefully at, like, how, you know, how sound are the causal inferences right. is important. Um, and, you know, and, and so, so yeah, it's kind of like conditional on the paper's aims or on the paper's framing or on the paper, on the conclusions that they're claiming they can draw. That's where, I, I think that's where these positive yeah. responsibilities come in. I mean, my instinct, and in I teach undergrad research methods and just finished teaching it yesterday, so I'm a little bit biased, it's very salient in my mind, but like the four validities I teach there, I feel like are pretty universal. So internal would be the one that is or isn't relevant depending mm-hmm. on the claims. But like construct validity, external validity, and statistical validity, I feel like we should probably always be evaluating those. Like, did they mm-hmm. measure what they said they were measuring and what their theoretical claims are about? And then does it generalize to the things they say it generalizes to? Or do they have evidence for it? Are they appropriately circumscribed? And then mm-hmm. like, did they um, follow the 
statistical practices that they claim to be following to have the error control they claim to have or whatever. Um, I feel like, and then internal validity in the case of causal claims, I feel like it would be weird if reviewers didn't feel some obligation to evaluate those things in most cases. I can imagine exceptions where it's like, yeah, maybe like the measurement part of it is so far outside my wheelhouse. I can't really evaluate construct validity or the statistical part of it in this particular case. I can't evaluate or... I totally agree with that. But, Samin, as an editor, um, do you come across reviews that don't do that? I I don't know if they did it, yeah. Well, sometimes sometimes I think that I know that they didn't do it because I think some Mm -hmm. people approach reviews as, like, they go through the paper and they make, like, a bullet point each time they notice something that Mm -hmm. stands out to them. And so I think if that's your approach to reviewing, you might address all of those things. Um, Yeah. But if you don't have, like, the, the overall goal of addressing each of those things, you can read through a paper and make a bunch of comments Forget, on it yeah. and not get to those. Right. I mean, I'm guilty of that for sure. And actually, one of my little projects for the next six months is going to be to develop a very simple rubric for reviewing or evaluating manuscripts. It can be post-publication. doesn't have to be reviewing. Um, that just asks about each of those four validities and then, like, one or two more global questions. More just to, like, remind, like a checklist to remind ourselves to think about those things. And then I'm curious, like... It, if we really formalized it that way, would there be decent consensus? Because the consensus in peer reviews is pretty low, according to the evidence that's out there. Yeah. But, like, is it because we're just, like, going with our feelings as we read the paper? And if we had, like, a more systematic, we felt like we had a job to check certain things, then maybe we would agree more? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, do you guys have, I have a little checklist that I use, but it's not at that level of, it, it's more like, it's actually an open science checklist. So it's, um, you know, is the data available is, you know, and it's basically, it's not like a good, bad thing. It's like, is this disclosed or not? So, so if the data is not available, but there's like an obvious reason why it shouldn't be, then that's not a mark against the paper. But, but I, I don't have that more conceptual checklist. It's, it's a really interesting idea. I want to go back to something you said about that, Samin, which is that external validity always applies. I I know we we talked about discussing Taliarco's new paper, and I've only read two pages of it, so and the uh, abstract. But I know that that that's I've read many tweets about it, so I know. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe we'll actually do that. But uh, external validity is a really interesting one because there are there are arguments. I, I feel like that's an that's one kind of like internal validity where it's. The extent to which it matters depends on what claims someone's right. trying to make. Whereas, whereas I, I wouldn't say that statistical conclusion, valid, unless someone's doing a qualitative paper, then they're, it's a totally different ballgame. But if, if they're using statistics, then the validity of the statistics they're using right. is kind of like it's always relevant. But with, um, if they're measuring things, then right. construct validity is always relevant. Whereas I feel like there are... I, I don't know. We should get into this maybe in a future episode because yeah. this might go down a really specific rabbit hole. But there, there are arguments which don't I don't necessarily with. always agree with. But there are arguments out there. Like there's that famous in praise paper of external and, validity. Yeah. yeah, which which I I have issues with. Right. But uh, let's. Did we ever <laughs> I could discuss go on a rant it? I feel like that, we discussed that paper. I don't know. Okay. I feel it's come up, but I don't think we used ever, to assign maybe it. Maybe we should yeah, do that on a future episode. It's a short paper, but yeah. which I totally disagree with. But I um. I mean, with external validity, I think it's if it's not stated, it's implied. So I think authors have a responsibility. Again, talking about my the kinds of papers I read, so social personality papers, I think authors have a responsibility to say if it if they don't think something would generalize. And yeah, we need to read Tal's paper to 
or I need to anyway, to like think more carefully about this. But I think I haven't ever come across a paper in my field where external validity was irrelevant or the like, or it wasn't implied. Like I think the authors would have to explicitly say, we're not interested in generalizing beyond these specific methods or stimuli or whatever. Otherwise it would be implied. Wait, is your argument, Sanjay, is your argument that sometimes it doesn't matter? Yeah, so, so, um, and I feel like that it's, it's rarely the case in social and personality that it doesn't matter. Um, but the, so, so there's, you know, you can, if you're going from a really sort of classic hypothetical deductive perspective, right, you can say, I have this theory. And if this theory is correct, then I should observe this result in this really specific, highly contrived situation. And if I don't, then it falsifies the theory, right? That's the sort of the logic. Um, uh, and so, so then you don't need generalized external validity or generalizability, because you're, you, you're you. If you have really truly derived a prediction that, like, look, if this theory is true, I'm gonna find it here, and then you haven't found it there. Um, but I think that that I think we, first of all, that's hardly ever the actual logic. Like a good way of describing the derivation chain from the introduction to the methods and. Second of all, like that invokes all these other requirements about severe testing that we almost never meet. And so I think in practice, that's that's this is my problem with MOOC. I don't think MOOC is it's kind of ironic. I, I, don't, I don't think MOOC is internally in incoherent. I think he overgeneralizes his argument against generalizability. Like I think it hard, I think his arguments are actually really narrow. Yeah. And, and we need to remember apply. that external validity applies to many, many things. Right. So it's not just like translating lab work to the field, but also like generalizing to other participants and other stimuli and other variations on the right, measures right. and so on. So yep, it, yep. I can't right. think of a case where yeah. none of the external validity is, is relevant. But I think that that raises a really interesting thing that I'm hoping is starting to happen more and more, which is people submitting papers that now make very, very circumscribed claims that are now like, I'm not going to bullshit yeah. you. We, we have no idea what this means beyond, you know, this small set of circumstances or stimuli or whatever, or like, we don't know, yeah, we don't know the mechanism, we don't know this or that. And I'm seeing more and more of those at Collabra, and we offer streamlined review at Collabra, so we see the editor's mm-hmm. decision letter, which is like, there's nothing wrong with your paper, but like, eh, you know, you didn't discover enough things. Um, and I think we just need to get more used to that. But like, I'd like to see reviewers be more tolerant yeah. of that, because that's just the reality. It's just like, if we're going to be honest and accurate, most papers are going to look like that. I mean, I would say, I would say even beyond being tolerant, like... You have to yeah. flip the cost-benefit analysis for authors, right? So th- this reminds me of how, like, you know, Google will violate some federal regulation because they've calculated that the probability of getting caught <laughs> times the fine is less than right. how much money they would make from it. And so, uh, so you have to, you have to like flip it around. You have to say like, not a, if you overclaim, not only am I going to like ding you on it, right. I'm going to really ding you on it. And if you're calibrated, I'm going to right. really praise you on it so that it actually like tilts the cost yeah. benefit benefit. That's actually one thing I've started yeah. saying in reviews sometimes is like, I feel like I'm being marketed to rather than like given information and evidence to evaluate. Um, I think we, we do need to start calling that out. Like if, if, yeah, if the claims are way outsized, you're not verifiable and so on. Like, I think that needs to be a negative and especially at glamour journals. Like, I feel like I try to hammer that a lot. I don't review for very many, very prestigious journals, but like nature, human behavior sometimes. I feel like they want that stuff. They want the really bold claims. And I'm like, as long as it's totally flagged as speculation, that's fine. But like, if 
the evidence doesn't back it up and they talk as if it does, that's the problem. So do you guys, when you review, do you just read front to back and make notes as you go? Do you like read out of order? Do you skim first and then make comments? Like how do you, how do you go about doing that? Just the actual process of like you're sitting down with a paper, what do you do? There was a period of time where I was reading um, the methods and results first. Um, and my, my reasoning was that sometimes people are really like compelling in the way that they like write an introduction. And so I wanted to just look at what they did and what they found um, before I got into all of their sort of like the decoration around that. I've stopped doing that because, um, yeah, usually the the introduction is so relevant to the, like the claims that they're trying to make and the ideas that they're trying to test that I, I just felt like it's a match between that and the methods and results um, that I care about. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's sort of a different experience doing that. Sometimes I try to pause after the intro and methods and ask myself, like especially with, uh, with the destruction stage as an editor, like I try to form a pretty strong opinion before... I go on to the results and discussion. Although again, like it could be fine through the intro and methods, but then have like serious problems in the results and discussion. But um, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But yeah, yeah I mostly I, read it all the way through. Yeah. I, it's funny. I, uh, cause when I'm just reading a paper, I'll skip around, I'll go to whatever. But when I review, I tend to be very like plotting front to back. I, I usually like, Typically, I'm on my computer. Sometimes I'll print it, but then I'll still have my computer there. So I make notes usually in a Word doc. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll go back and I'll edit those notes. So I'll just make notes as I go along. And, and you know, sometimes it's that thing where, like, you know, you, you misunderstand something or you say, you mm-hmm. need to address this. And literally a sentence later, they address it. You're like, okay, never mind. So I'll, like, edit my notes as I, as I go along. Um, but, but I do do front to back. I, and, um, yeah, part of it is, like, because when I read stuff regularly out of order, like in my normal life, I don't read everything. And I feel like as a reviewer, it's my job to read everything. Um, although sometimes sometimes with some things, like I can, there's such clear problems, I, it's really hard to make myself get through the discussion because I'm like, dude, I know this is, you're not going to make up for it. Like, you know, um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I also do you, so I, um, I do a, a fair amount of time after I'm done like I'll make notes and I'll do stuff along the way, but I, I spend quite a bit of time reorganizing and editing my notes into a response. Yeah, a lot of time, yeah. 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 Almost, I think I spend almost as much time writing my actual review based on my notes and rewriting it than as I do reading the paper and taking notes. It's probably close yeah. to 50. I cut a lot of stuff too, especially, I mean, it depends, but like if, you know, because sometimes the stuff just ends up looking nitpicky and I'm like, okay, I'm not going to, bug them with this mm-hmm. but also sometimes it's like if there's like it's i don't want to overwhelm people but also like if i think it's probably shouldn't be published although this is a kind of an interesting dilemma right like if i if i think it probably shouldn't be published there's this choice between like do i just focus on like the couple of major conceptual problems that for me are deal breakers but then if if the if i don't put all the other stuff in there and the editor says, you know, you know what, I'm going to let them revise and resubmit that I haven't gotten that other stuff in there. But the alternative mm-hmm. is I kind of like sometimes if there's just a couple of major conceptual points that are deal breakers for me, it's like I don't want to dilute that by making it look like. Right. Yeah. I feel like 
I have to trust the editor that if I think I've raised like really devastating points that they will see how serious those are. Like I hate doing a review where like if if I feel like the paper's really really bad, if I think there's like a decent chance the editor's going to give it their seal of approval, I shouldn't be editing for that I shouldn't be reviewing for that editor or that journal, I think. Like I need to go into it having some faith that if I make a really valid criticism that's pretty serious that they're going to take that seriously wait so you you think you shouldn't be editing for a journal if you don't have good faith in the editors yeah Hmm. yeah i guess that makes sense i think i would i think now i mean this is relatively new but i think now i would turn down a review request if i knew enough about the editor to feel like it's very it's there's a decent chance they would not be swayed by strong valid evidence of the on the dimensions that I care about, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so there are more and more like journals and editors that I think I wouldn't review for now. I'm also trying to get pickier about reviewing for journals because I want to do most more post publication peer review and reviewing for open access journals and things like that. So I'm trying to be more picky about my time and see my time as something that people are have to earn a bit. Mm-hmm. So. Do you guys read if there's a, like all the other stuff that can be there besides the main manuscripts? So supplements, mm-hmm. appendices, um, if there's an OSF page or something else with materials, with data, with code, if there's a pre-registration, like do you always read all of that stuff? If not, how do you decide what you read and when? Like, how do you approach that? Because I... it's, it's, on the one hand, it's like, it's great that publishing has gotten like, the paper mm-hmm. as a single discrete unit, completely self-contained, it was never, it was It was always like a, a sort of concession to the realities of right. print. Um, like there is more information that's relevant. And so that's great for the world at large. But as a reviewer, it, you know, it can get to be a lot. Yeah, I definitely don't read all of the things. Um, but I always read pre-registrations. Um, and then for the other things, I think I would only read them if I felt like a particular need to read them. I, I don't think that I've... Well, yeah. So sometimes for materials, if it's like, well, I could imagine this um, being a great manipulation if it's like this, but I could imagine it being terrible if it's like this. Um, but I mean, I think that... I think it's ideal to read... Those, I think you can miss things by not reading those things, um, but I don't do it every time because uh, sometimes the way that I'm like the way that a manipulation is described is just um, just doesn't tell you what you need to know about the actual manipulation. And you need to like look at the actual manipulation to know and to identify big problems. Yeah, I'm the same. So I always read pre-registrations and then everything else only if something triggers me to read it. And I'm not proud of that, but that's... But I remember one case where it was an an implausibly large effect. I was just like, I don't understand how they got Mm -hmm. this. So then I went to the materials to see how they manipulated the variable, the like vignettes. They were actually in a different language, but I put them into Google Translate and they literally just told participants like in this case answer higher and in this case (laughs) like answer lower and i was like oh that's how you got a gigantic effect of what sounded like a subtle manipulation so so yeah i think we should be reviewing those things i mean data encode i can't i literally don't know how to analyze data anymore i don't have any software on my computer that can do it at least by me i have r on my computer but i don't know how to use r so like i'm so so grateful for reviewers that do you look at the data yeah yeah yeah, me too 
I wonder if we need to start a more formal system of like assign. Like, I'm happy to look at the pre-registration and let the person who looks at the data not look at the pre-registration or something like that. Like delegate, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there's it's it's an interesting. Like, I think I'm pro- probably pretty similar to the two of you. I I always look at pre-registrations. I the second most frequent thing would be materials for the reasons you mentioned. You know, it, it's an interesting question. Like. One, how much should reviewers, because some sometimes, you know, and I think one of the things that I think this is kind of implicit in what, what you're saying that is I'm more likely to look at something if I think it's relevant to claim that's being made versus if they're just saying like, yeah, like these are, you know, the supplement is like additional stuff right. that you might also be interested in. I might not look at that. Mm-hmm. Or if like we posted the data just for transparency or whatever. I infrequently look at code and data, but I, I have once or twice when, especially if it's a more if it's a paper where like either I don't understand the analysis as written and so I want to see the code or where like it's a more quanty paper where that's like actually part of, you know, sort of part of the content. Mm-hmm. But um, it is an interesting question, sort of what the expectations are. I, I feel like probably I would be interested to know among reviewers how many when there's a pre-registration, how many look and, and pay attention to it. I pay a pretty good amount of attention to pre-registrations when they're there. Yeah, and I often find surprises. Yeah, in them. It, and it's, I often yeah. find it very hard. It takes a long time to find it. Like, yeah, figure out the relevant parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's often well, yeah, a lot and... of differences between what's reported. It's, I think, the assumption that the paper is done and reported in line with the pre-registration is often wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah also, like, sometimes you can yeah. tell without even looking at the pre-registration that the results section doesn't differentiate between what was pre-registered and what wasn't, or the method section doesn't mention any deviations or things like that. So a standard thing in my reviews when there's a pre-registration is like there there should be very explicit language in the method section about any deviations and in the results section there should be separated out what's pre-registered and what's not. Yes. Yeah. That, I mean, I think, right. Like there's nothing, you know, there's absolutely nothing wrong with having analyses that weren't pre-registered. They, Mm -hmm. it should be clear which is which so that because that's relevant for people you and know, it, interpreting and, it yeah and you should let that influence how you interpret it right, in your own right, favor right right, right. So right. Then, make it clear evaluate, and yeah. use that information yeah. Yeah. yeah but yeah it is it's interesting like i've noticed this both as an author and as a, a reviewer that you know um pre-registrations so i mean it depends on so if it's like a, a fairly compact quick study, then often a good pre-registration will look very similar to what's actually in the paper when it's done well. But when it's like a more complicated thing that took a long time, there's just inherently more drift. Like, and I've noticed this in our own work, like we, you know, it's like we did the pre-registration and then like we changed a term for something because we sort of figured out during the process of doing the work that like, oh, the terminology is clearer if we call it this rather than that, or you know, whatever, like things, things change. Um, it's made me really like my own process of doing pre-registrations has made me more and more like want to do more registered reports. And, and we're doing a couple of those, but, um, yeah, it's, it's like, even, even when someone, when the pre-registration is followed well in the manuscript, it can still sometimes be difficult to, to cross check the two because the, the order in which things are presented are different or the mm-hmm. terms used for things are different or the whatever. Um, it's just not, and, and for reasons that are totally legit and, and mm-hmm. not shady at all. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, it does add a lot of time and overhead to, re- and of course then there's the cases where it's just like a, 
not good (laughs) correspondence. Mm -hmm. I know we're running over time, but I do want to get to one more thing at least. I don't know if you guys have other things, but like for me, especially, yeah, for me as a reviewer, I hate when I know who the authors are and I feel really, really dirty because I can't like, I can't remember now the specifics, which is good because I shouldn't reveal it. But recently I reviewed a paper and I wasn't blinded. Um, and one of the authors was someone I don't know well, but like think very, very highly of. And it was like a very technical thing that they were, that I think of them as being very good at. And so I couldn't like bring myself to question that aspect of the paper. I was like, oh, but there's that co-author on it. So like, it's probably fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think a lot of times when we think about um, blinding and bias, we think about like, oh, if it's, if it's someone you hate or don't respect or whatever, like you might not be able to be objective, mm-hmm. but it also goes the other way. And so I'm curious how you guys deal with that when the journal sends you a non-blinded version of the manuscript or when sometimes a review request even includes the author's names. I, you know, it's this funny thing where I, uh, I started signing my reviews a few years ago and this is actually, I've, I, I have no idea what the actual effect is, but subjectively I worry about the thing you're mentioning more now that I sign things. So I feel like mm-hmm. before I signed them, if it was someone like I know because like I actually have like a, an interaction with them at conferences or maybe it's it's like an acquaintance or whatever, I've, I felt like the, the anonymity um, just removed any concerns about like I could say what I wanted to say and I didn't have to worry about like this person, what are they going to think of me for having said this thing? Or are they going to think I'm qualified to say it or whatever? So there's this weird interaction where like, in some ways, I, I, I wonder if those biases are more of an issue now that I sign reviews. It's like the interaction of both mm-hmm. having your name and knowing their name that, that mm-hmm. makes it an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, I, I know you like, you know, you've said when you were editing at SPPS, you would like cover your monitor so you can see the names mm-hmm. and do things like that. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. Um, I just, I don't know if, if the name's there, I'm going to see it and mm-hmm. I'm just going to like do my best to like try not to pay attention to it. Although as a psychologist, I kind of suspect that's a bullshit thing to think you're doing. But, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't have a good uh, answer to that. Um, my subjective experience is is almost that I might be more likely to overcorrect than undercorrect, but I I don't know if that's true. So like, yeah, I worry about if there's somebody I admire on the paper. I think I'm like, I might be harsher than I normally am, and um, uh, I don't know if it goes the other way. Actually, <laughs> I don't like I don't know if I'm especially generous when it's someone that I. It depends on what I don't. I, yeah, I can think like of one case from. where I think I did the opposite. I was a reviewer on something by someone that I kind of have a negative opinion of, and people probably think I have a very strong negative opinion of. And I was after I saw the other reviews, I was like, "Oh my god, I was way too nice. Like I'm the only person who didn't like think <laughs> didn't point out these big problems." Yeah, um, that's that's yeah, good validation just... for your negative opinion of them, though. <laughs> Wait, why the other people? Because other people the thought their work sucked. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I just, I just really don't want to know the names. I just, and it's going to yeah. be interesting. I'm, a, I think I'm very close to finally starting my post-publication peer review project, where I actually start commenting on papers, and I'm going to try to keep myself blind um, to authors' IDs. Which, yeah, when I was editing, it wasn't that hard. Like, I just would not, I knew where the information was and I knew where not to look. But with reviewing, it's like sent at you when you don't expect it and it's hard to control. Yeah. Um, right. But. Um, 
there is one more thing that I was curious to ask you guys about. And I think we maybe have talked about this a little bit, but I also think that maybe our listeners would be curious to hear your answers, which is just how you write reviews when you think that somebody has like that the study has been p-hacked or there's qrps or harking or whatever what if we did an episode on that i feel like i have a lot to say about that okay given the time I oh wonder... we, can leave, we can leave this as a or, teaser because yeah like how do you <laughs> so how do you raise concerns about questionable research practices and also how do you evaluate non-pre-registered work yeah. which is kind of similar right yeah. when it's not pre-registered you can't like i think those are really yeah i think i wouldn't want to give a short answer to those questions. okay yeah i would like to talk more about that we could do that all right maybe that's a good place to stop on a cliffhanger (laughs) listeners tune in i don't know if it'll be next time sometime (laughs) when we finally get to this for the next black goat on p hacking qrp whatever reviews um i don't know anyway thank you everybody for listening and uh this has been the black goat and we'll catch you next time Thank you.